Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. You came. Going out to be rich today? Uh, everybody here wants to be rich, right? Uh, it's a tale of two kings I want to talk about today. And we're going to look at scriptures starting in 1 Samuel and go all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 12. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 9 and go all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm not going to read it all because you don't want to be here till 3 o'clock in the afternoon with me reading to you. So we're not going to do that. I'm just going to tell the story. And then I'll read some of the scripture as well. But I want to talk about this today. I, I just think this is so important. And that last song that we just sang is it just says what I'm going to tell you today, and, and I hope you, you hear it. And then when we finish up, we're going to dedicate those windows today, and I want to do that. I've got a plan here, so we're still on, we're on track, sort of, but we're good. Um, I want to talk to you about this guy. There's this young man. He's out farming. He farms with his dad, and he's out in the field one day, and he's farming. He's doing his thing out there, and his dad comes out to him and says, hey, you know, the, the donkey's got out of the pen and uh, they've wandered off. Would you go looking for them? And so the young man says, yeah. And he goes out and he starts hunting for his father's donkeys. And he goes out and he hunts and he hunts. And he's gone a couple of days hunting for these donkeys because he just can't find them. And he looks everywhere and he can't find them. And uh, so finally he comes near a town and he remembered that in this town there is a guy they call the seer. And uh, he says, maybe he'll know where the donkeys are. Maybe he can see where the donkeys are. So he goes into the town and he asks him to ask that. And as he walks in, he runs into this older man. And he, he asks him, he goes up to him and says, sir, do you know where the seer is? Do you know where the seer is? And the older man looks at him and he says something kind of curious. He asks him, he says, is your name Saul? And he affirms to him, yeah, my name is Saul. And the older man tells him that he is the seer, and he invites Saul to come and sit and eat with him. And when the seer, whose name is Samuel, you guys will know that story if you've read the Bible at all, his name is Samuel, laid eyes on Saul, God speaks to him, and he spoke to him, and he said this, he said, this is the man I'm choosing to be the king of Israel. He's going to be the king. You find that in 1 Samuel chapter 9, that whole story told a little bit like that. And the Spirit of God spoke to Samuel and said, this is the man that I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. See, the nation had been governed up to that point by guys who were judges. Starting really with Moses and moving all the way up, there had been someone who had been there who judged the nation. They basically just oversaw everything. God was in charge. It was a theocracy and God was in charge. And, uh, but now the people had decided they wanted a king. They were tired of things being the way they were and they wanted a king. And so they, they begin to uh, ask for a king, and finally God gives in. He warns them they'll regret it, but he says, yeah, you can have a king, and he gives them a king. And you pick this story up, 1 Samuel 9, uh, verse 17, uh, and, and Sam, like I said before, Saul, he's just a farm boy, and uh, so after you know, Saul, uh, Samuel tells him who he is and what's going on, he invites Saul to eat lunch with him, to eat dinner with him. And Saul looks at him, and he says something I think is very interesting in verse 21. He, he says, but I am just a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel, and, and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? And what he was saying here is, is that I really am not worthy 
to sit down and eat with you. I'm not worthy to come into your presence. I'm not worthy. And it's clear that he does not have a real high self-esteem. He doesn't have a real good version of who he is and what kind of person he is. He sees himself as the least of all the people of Israel. And there may be some humility here, but I really have come to believe as I looked at this that it is an esteem problem, that his heart isn't right, that there's something going on inside of him that's messed up. And I don't think Saul really knew who he was in the sight of God. He didn't understand who he really was in the sight of God. We see that played out in Saul's life tragically as we go along. Now, the second king of Israel that I want to talk about was David. And most of you are familiar with King David. He's a lot more known than King Saul was. King Saul and King David, they're, they're tied together like peas and carrots in the words of the famous philosopher Forrest Gump. Uh, everything they did, they just, they just worked together. It just goes together. Yeah, some of you got that, some of you didn't. It's okay. Those who didn't, we'll explain it later. I'm always fascinated, I'm fascinated by these two lives, how much alike they are and how different everything turned out. I guess my biggest question has always been this. Why is it that God rejected Saul and called David a man after my own heart. Because they're both very, very, very broken, sinful, messed up human beings. Both of them. And, and at first, as a younger person, I wonder, maybe Saul, maybe God just has favorites, you know, because I've had people play favorites. Anybody here had people play favorites in your life where maybe you weren't the favorite, you know? I, I mean, I've had that. And, and so I thought, maybe God is just playing favorites and he likes David, but he thinks Saul's kind of a bad person. But I, I realize that has nothing to do with this. I come to see it as so much more, and I want to compare these kings and make some observations. So let's pick the story back up. Samuel tells Saul that he's going to be king, Israel's king. So then Saul heads back to the family farm because he tells him, hey, the mules, the, the donkeys, they found them. Just go on back home. So he heads back home to the family farm. And when you see Saul again, and that didn't come out right, but when you see the man Saul again, it's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 14, and I do want to pick up there and read for a little bit here. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for donkeys, he said, but when he saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul replied, he assured us the donkeys had been found. And then they say this, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Verse 7, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzvah, and he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I will deliver you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppress you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distress, and you have said, no, set a king over us, so now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So what they were doing is they were going to come in one at a time and God was going to say, no, 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 until he came to Saul and then he would say yes over Saul. So he said, present yourselves to the Lord by your tribes and clans. And when Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And all the rest of them went and sat down. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. And, and uh, finally, uh, Martri's clan was chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. In verse 22, so they inquired further of the Lord, has the man came here or come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he's hidden himself in the baggage. He's hiding. This man who was to be king is hiding in the baggage. I don't know if that hits you like it hit me, but I was like, wow, the guy is hiding in the baggage and he's supposed to be king. And so then they move on from there and Saul returns home with his family. And the next time you see him, 
he is returning from a field and he's plowing a field with two oxen. He's king. He's supposed to be king, but he's still out doing labor work. He's still out doing things that he did before. He still doesn't have it in his heart and his mind who he really is. He doesn't understand who he really is. I have to believe there's something going on inside his heart. There's something going on inside Saul's heart that makes him feel unworthy and less than. There's some things that are going on that makes him hide. It's not just normal for him to go and hide. He was not acting very king-like. He was afraid. Uh, Again, some say he was humble, but I think he was just unsure of his identity. He wasn't sure of who he was. King just wasn't a title that fit him very well. It didn't fit who he believed, at least who he believed himself to be. And I think it's because there were some things going on inside of him, some woundings in his heart, maybe some things that had been said, or maybe a, a physical abuse that made him feel ashamed and unworthy. You know, he just wasn't sure who he was. Maybe there was a sin, or at least a perception of sin in the heart of Saul that made him think, if they really knew who I am, if they really understood who I am, they would never want me to be their king. Have you ever been there where you looked and you said, man... If they only knew who I really was, they wouldn't want me to be their pastor. That's like weekly for me, you know, at times, seriously. Or if, if you really knew who I am, you wouldn't want me teaching your kids. Or if you really knew who I am, you wouldn't even want me picking up your garbage, you know. I mean, I've been there, and I know that we all have been there. Saul had a poverty mentality. That's what I call it. It's a poverty mentality. That I, it, it made him always try to deflect blame and responsibilities for things off of himself because, see, he already had enough guilt and shame, and he didn't want any more. And it was just easier to say, hey, look, just don't look at me. You know, I, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. You ever been around somebody like that, that everything happens? Not my fault. You know, they've got a poverty mentality. Most people like that are, are dealing with things that they just can't take anymore. Their heart's too full. And Saul could not process. He did not understand that God knew him intimately. And he saw this man, Saul, and, and inside of him, God had seen the greatness possible in him. Because there was greatness possible in this man. In fact, God had seen greatness in him to the degree that he had made him king over Israel. And Saul did not understand that to God, Saul was not the least of the least. In fact, the Bible says in chapter 10 of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 4, that God says this about him. He said, he was a man unlike any other in Israel. How would you like to have God say that about you? She's a woman unlike anyone else in Muncie. Or he's a man unlike anyone else in First Church. You know, that, Those are words that, man, if God says that about you, it's a good day. And God was saying that about Saul. He's a man unlike any other. He tells that to Samuel. He's a man like any other in Israel. He's the man. He's the one. I see good things in his life. I see positive things. I see that that's the man I want to govern my people. And what a shame that Saul couldn't get a hold of this. He couldn't grasp this. All he saw was his brokenness and his shame, and he ran away. He took off and he ran. And I think that maybe a lot of us here are just like that in our lives, that maybe, maybe, just maybe, God has put his hand on you and called you to do something. He's, he's asking you to do some things, but you're saying, oh, I don't think I'm really qualified. And God's saying, no, you're, you're like no other. You could teach that Sunday school class like no other. You, you could love those kids like no other. You could be that teenage leader like no other. You could, you name it, like no other. 
But all you can hear and all you see are the lies that Satan is telling you through others and your circumstances that are saying, no, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You ever heard those words? You ever heard Satan talk to you that way? You're not good enough? Those are all lies. They're lies from the pit of hell himself. And, 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 you know, but in our hearts, down deep inside where we live, if they really knew me, they'd never ask me to minister. They'd never ask me to love them. They'd never allow me. And every one of this, in every one of us, there are woundings from people and from circumstances. First of all, every one of us is born with sin in our lives. Every one of us. The Bible is very clear on that, that we're born with sin in our hearts. And sin and wounds, these voices, they scream loudly to us throughout our lives all the time. They scream words of condemnation, defeat, and death. Words that you may recognize, as I said earlier, words like, you're not good enough, you're disqualified because you did this. In our hearts, at the very core of who we are, we're, we're born with sin, we've, we've committed sins. And people have done things in our lives that wounded us and damaged us. This is true in all of us. Let me, let me just show you an illustration here. Uh, Jim, if you put that up there real quick. There's a first, uh, there's this thing. What does it look like? Okay, sin and woundings. And that's, that's your heart. That's your soul. Okay, that's, that's where we all are. And inside of each one of us, there's that sin. There's the wounding that's there. And it represents our core, our soul. We have all committed sins. We all have beliefs and ideas that come from the damage and the wounds that have been inflicted on us by others. Our parents, a teacher at school. I once had a teacher at school make me stand up in front of the class and hee-haw like a donkey, she said, so everybody could laugh at you because you're just a fool. I was in fifth grade. Now, today she'd be in jail. In those days, she was funny and everybody thought it was funny. I told my parents, they didn't believe me. But I got to tell you, that wounded my soul. And from then on, I didn't talk in class about anything. I didn't stand up when it was time. I didn't want to be up front. I didn't want to express my feelings about anything. I just shut my mouth so I would never have to do that. It took a very long time to understand that and to deal with that. And that's my problem. And you don't care. That's all right. I understand that. Because you all have your own problems that you've had to deal with. Things that happened that wounded your soul every one of us. And the problem is this, when we, when we realize that, when we come to that place where we understand that, when we look at the soul and the mess it is, we begin to feel shame. And that's the next layer that goes on around that. We feel shame. I've felt shame before. Man, I can't believe I did that. I'm a, I'm a fool. Man, I can't let anybody know about that. That's the thing with shame. We hide it very well. We want to hide it. Anybody here ever felt shame for anything you've ever done? Yeah. You know, I can't believe I acted like that. I mean, I got to confess this week, I pulled up behind this lady and she was going about 30 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone. We're going down the road and she comes up to one of the run roundabouts. There wasn't a car in 300 yards of that place. And I knew she was going to do it. And she stopped and she's looking both ways. And I just couldn't help myself. My hand hit the horn. And I was ashamed. I mean, I was like, man, you're such an idiot. I cannot believe you did that, you know. But it was just like, you know, because I was running behind and, you know, she, you know, it, I, no excuse. I, I did it. I'm confessing. And I felt shame for that. I'll be honest, I really did. I felt shame for that. The thing is, is Satan always tries to get us to believe we're the only ones. 
you know? I mean, if he can make us believe that, a lot of us are sitting around going, but I'm the only one that feels like this. You ever felt like that? I'm the only one that ever felt shame. I'm the only one that ever done anything like this. I'm the only one that's like this. If they knew about it at church, oh my goodness, they wouldn't even let me in. They wouldn't let me join for sure. And if I was a member, they would do, you know, like they, they'd bring me up front and rip the patches off my jacket and, you know, send me out into the wilderness like that TV show that used to be on, you know, I, a long time ago, really long time ago. I'm getting really old. I, people will think I'm awful. And you know, the, the worst part of it is that Satan tells you that God's ashamed of you. You ever felt like God was ashamed of you? I, I have. So I begin to live in shame. And when we feel shame, we become desperate to hide it. Have you ever really wanted to hide your shame? That's the next part. We, we begin to put on the costume. See, that's what a lot of us are doing. We're walking around with a costume on. You don't realize it. We think we're okay. We think we got everybody fooled. Oh, it's not really a costume. And after a while, we even fool ourselves. It's not really a costume. This is just who I am. And so we walk around like that, and, and, and we try to hide the shame in, in a lot of costumes. Some people get, become funny. They just tell jokes all the time. They're always laughing. You ever heard of a guy named Robin Williams? Great guy. Loved his acting. Loved his humor. Funny guy, just full of energy and full of shame. And he was covering it up with his costume. And eventually that shame became too big for him. And he took his own life. Some work really hard and try to achieve a lot of things. Some act humble and try to hide behind it with all their humility. And they drop out and just do nothing. Others make a lot of money and act like they have it all figured out. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Robert Kraft? Or Jim Irsay? Both those guys seem like they got it together. They got lots of money anyway. And they got nice houses and big cars, but they're full of shame. And it shows drug addiction and now the prostitution problem some become pastors pastors people become pastors guys become pastors women become pastors to hide their shame sometimes they cover up some become doctors and lawyers many of them attend church but the reality is is that we all do this and we put this costume on to hide what's really going on inside of our soul in hopes that no one's ever going to notice who I really am and we hide in the baggage our own baggage we're hiding in the baggage just like Saul we're down there hiding in all the junk saying oh I hope nobody pays attention to me and Saul hides and he never really deals with any of this eventually he takes on the kingly costume in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 6, the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he burned with anger and it said he led the people of God to defeat the Ammonites and to rescue the city of Jabesh. And, and he acted kingly and from there on he took on the costume of king and he began to pretend that he was king and that everything was okay. He just hid it underneath his kingship and he, he found out that that costume was pretty comfortable. Everybody bowed down, everybody did what he said to do and, and so he thought he had it all figured out. But the problem is, is when you're wounded and messed up on the inside, when all that sin and all the wounding is still there and you haven't dealt with it, when your soul's broken, it doesn't take too long until your facade begins to crack. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, as we move on, Saul's getting set to go into battle against the Philistines and he's waiting on Samuel to come to him because Samuel is supposed to make a sacrifice from God, to God so that they, uh, God would be with them as they go out into this battle. But he doesn't come and he doesn't come and, and, and Saul's getting anxious and he's afraid everybody's going to take off and he's afraid of what everybody's going to think and he's, going to be, he's afraid that, that maybe somebody's going to think he didn't schedule 
you know, Samuel to come or whatever. You know, he's looking to deflect off of himself. He's afraid they're going to see his facade. So he takes it upon himself. He relies upon himself and he goes and acts in the place of the priest and he makes the sacrifice. And then when Samuel gets there, he goes, what have you done? And he calls him out on it because the instructions from God are very clear that only the priests were allowed to make a sacrifice. And Saul was never a priest. And he says, what have you done? And we see that again, king, even though king is, or Saul's king, he has this poverty mindset. Saul says, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's yours, Samuel. You came too late. I had to do what I did. And he deferred the blame and he chose to do what seemed right to him rather than living in obedience to God. And then he chose to stick with the excuse rather than to repent. And man, that's the thing we do. We'll stick with our excuse no matter what. I mean, God has given us an out. He's given us a place to repent. He'll bring us to a place of repentance and we'll say, it's not my fault. And we'll shove it aside rather than repent. Rather than acknowledge my sin. And Samuel tells him the kingdom be removed from him. He says, it's not going to be yours anymore. And man, now Samuel's nightmare is, or Saul's nightmare is completely realized as he realizes now everybody's going to know the truth. They're going to take this away from me. And so he begins to fight desperately to keep that costume on, to keep himself covered up. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul continues to live in this disobedience to God's explicit command. There's a battle and God had commanded that all living things be killed. And, you know, I got problems with that sometimes. I mean, it's a struggle when you read those things. But that's what God had said to do and he had a reason. And Saul keeps the sheep and the livestock that God said to slaughter. He doesn't kill them and he doesn't kill the, the king that he defeated. And, and then he makes an excuse rather than repent. Because Saul is confronted by Samuel again about his disobedience in verse 19. And Saul says, I did obey. I kept all the animals to make a sacrifice to God. Boy, and we're all going, oh yeah, way to go, Saul. That's a great idea. And Samuel points out that God doesn't want Saul's sacrifice. He wants his obedience. And Saul then repents. And it seems okay, he's going to repent. But he repents with an excuse. It's not my fault. I was afraid of the people and I gave in to them. It's their fault. You ever been around people like that? They never, ever, ever take any of the blame. They're slippery. They're like nailing jello to a wall. They always get off somehow. And what he's doing is showing that he is a king, but he's living like a pauper. He never takes responsibilities for his actions. Samuel finishes his business with Saul, and here's the here's sad truth. What started out so promising, a man like no other, Samuel finishes his business with Saul and never talks to him again, and God moves on. He changes directions because this man will not repent. This man will not deal with what's going on inside his soul. So Samuel is moved to anoint David as king. And that gets really weird when you already have a king and you anoint someone else as king. Things just get really strange from there. And the story of David begins so much like Saul. David's a shepherd boy. He's the youngest, the least of his brothers. But there's something different about David. He no doubt, too, has been born with sin. He no doubt hears the taunts and the humiliation of having older brothers make fun of him. And those things leave woundings on his soul. But David is not defined by them. And when you read the Psalms, you realize that even at an early age, David had learned to believe in God and to trust in him. And he believed in the greatness of God, to trust in God's forgiveness. And he understood that he did not need to keep it hidden inside his heart, but that he should open his heart up. And here's the part you got to learn. And he was bearing his soul and got real 
before God. He has the woundedness in his soul. He has the sin. But when the shame begins to appear, because it always does, instead of hanging on to it and wrapping a costume around it, David runs to the Lord and he confesses and he acknowledges and he complains out loud sometimes and he does whatever he has to do to get God to see and to understand and take it away rather than cover it up. He admits who he is. And here's the deal. Satan cannot use confessed sins against you. I wish we could get this in the church because the church is the best at covering up and walking around like in our costumes and saying, oh, I got my act together. I'm good. Everything's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're doing great. We're doing great. Satan cannot use confessed sins and wounds that have been exposed against us. If everyone knows who you are and still loves you, then Satan, who is the accuser, has nothing to accuse you of. He can't come around and say, they're not going to love you. Oh, they already do. (laughs) Sorry, you're wrong. So David's confident. And that confidence shows as we read down through his story. He takes on the lion, the bear, and he sings in court for Saul and defies his brother's taunts at the front line. I mean, he goes to the front line to help out. His dad sends him up there and is up there doing his thing, and he asks his brother a question. His brother saying, oh, you just came up here to get in everybody's business. You know, his big brother, little brother stuff. Should have created woundings in his soul, but it doesn't do it because he knows who he is. And he's able to look at his brother and say, you know, whatever. You know, you got problems, boy. And he just walked on. He knew who he was. Then he fights Goliath and wins that battle. And he becomes friend with Saul's son, Jonathan, marries the king's daughter. And he becomes a great warrior in battle. And the crowds sing a song. They sing, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul hated David so much. And they're just, this is where life begins to just work back and forth. And this king begins to seek to kill him. And David runs, leaving everything behind. And when David had a chance in the middle of all these battles to kill Saul, not once, but twice, two times, God set it up where David could go and end it all and kill him. David did not. Instead, his heart was clean, his heart was right, and his heart was right before the Lord, and he did the right and honorable thing. He spared Saul's life, even lamenting the fact that he had humiliated Saul by cutting off a chunk of his robe when Saul was not there, or when, when he, Saul did not know he was there. And then Saul, in the midst of the battle with the Philistines, is wounded, and he fears he's going to be caught and humiliated, so he does what... People do when they're wounded and when they're afraid and when they're unwilling to confess and let the shame out. He falls on his sword and he dies. Still proud, still covering up, still living in the costume of king, still living as a pauper, never becoming the man that God saw he could be and intended to be, never being the man like no other. It's tragic. So David becomes king and he's comfortably established and he begins to take on the agenda of God and he makes God's priorities the kingdom priorities, his priorities, and he shows honor of God by choosing, uh, uh, of God's chosen by bringing Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, to, who is crippled to live in his palace, and he gives him a place at his table, and David's victorious in battle, and things are going well, and then as Ian taught a couple weeks ago, David has his Bathsheba moment in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I remember reading this as a teenager, and I remember thinking in my mind that isn't Murder and adultery worse than keeping some sheep? Seemed like it to me, you know? I mean, he took this guy's wife, and as someone pointed out, he was king. She didn't have a whole lot of choice. Kind of weird, kind of bad. And then he kills the guy's, the guy that 
you know, he took his wife because he didn't want him to know. And then, you know, he does this thing and he comes to a place where he tries to cover it up just like everyone else would. I mean, there's this stuff going on inside of his soul. Instead of admitting it, he covers it up. He's ashamed, so he covers it up. He puts on his kingly robe, and he does something really cool. He marries this poor widow and brought her in. And boy, what a valiant man this king is, marrying the widows of the warriors who died in battle. And he thought it was finished. He thought, everybody's going to love me. I'm just going to walk around as an awesome person. But then the prophet Nathan shows up. And Nathan is this guy that walks in, and he begins to tell him, a story. He tells him a story about a man who stole one guy, a man who had many, many sheep and stole the sheep that belonged to one man. And in this story, David recognizes his sin. It gets to him. And he's so ashamed. And here's what you learn that David, here's where you learn that David is the real deal, that he is a king and not a pauper and not a king living like a pauper. The difference between David and Saul happens right here. And it's this, that when Saul was confronted by Samuel, for his sins, he made an excuse. He said, it's not my fault. And he kept his costume intact. But when David was confronted by Nathan with his sin, he acknowledged it. He exposed himself for what he had done, for who he is. He admits it. He makes it as wide open as he can. And there were consequences to it. And man, there's a lot of stuff that goes on from there. But David took off the costume and God called him a man after his own heart. And I love that. That rocked my boat this week. Not a perfect man, but a man willing to be real and honest, a king. See, kings should be people, in truth, kings are people who are willing to be rich, really, are people who are willing to admit who they are to open up their heart, to get to that place in there, the sin and the woundedness, where it can be dealt with so that it can be cleaned out, so the shame can go away, so they can be the person that God intended them to be. And that's where a lot of us will never get to because we're going to walk around and keep that closed up and hidden. We're going to walk around and keep our shame hidden. We're going to walk around in our costume and make everybody think everything is okay. Right now, sitting here in this church building, right now as I speak, there's many of you going, well, there's no way I'm ever going to tell anybody my stuff. And you're right. You're going to live like a pauper the rest of your life. Because you cannot be what God wants you to be if you're hiding behind a costume. It's just the way it is. God used David's line to bring Jesus Christ our Lord into this world. And the reason he could do that is not because David was perfect. Because David was far from perfect. David did some things that are just downright awful. But David confessed them. He admitted to them. He accepted the, the shame and the guilt and everything that went with it. And he dealt with it. Took off the costume and got clean. And got real before the Lord. Satan could not touch David. The way I see it is this, Saul was never really king. He was always a pauper pretending to be a king. He was never able to take off the costume and become what God intended. He was never really blessed. He never truly became rich. He had lots of stuff, but he was never rich. David was a king before the coronation. Long before he was ever coronated as king of kings in Israel, he was running for his life. He was dealing with lots of stuff, but somewhere along the way, he had learned to be real and truthful, and he had the presence of God upon him, and he knew 
God was in charge, and he knew Satan could have no hold over him, and so he was rich beyond words. No costume, no fake life, no shame. Satan couldn't use his past because David had dealt with it. Now, the title of the series is How to Be Rich, and maybe it should be wealthy, but the first thing we have to learn is this, that wealth or being rich has nothing to do with money. I know people who are filthy rich who have very few dollars to their name. Being rich has everything to do with being able to live our lives free of guilt, shame, and fear. I had a friend, and you guys would know who I'm talking about. He tells his testimony uh, without any shame. But I remember the day when he got his, when, when God spoke to him and he exposed himself for who he really was and admitted it. Todd Stone's his name. He, he was a man who had lots of money, became broke basically without any money, and became filthy rich because he got rid of the shame. And his life has taken a drastic turn, and God has used him, and he is a man after God's own heart. And he is living out the life of a man like no other, because he dealt with the shame. He didn't live in the mess. Being rich is to live and become what God sees you are made to be. But to be rich, you have to get real. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus reminds us that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, it's not about what we own, but who we are that counts. Not putting them down. Good people inside, they just are broken. Jim Ursay, Robert Kraft, multi-billionaire NFL team owners are not rich in God's sight because of what they're doing. They're embarrassing themselves and their family. They have no idea how to be wealthy. They're living like paupers in big houses. They put on the costumes to hide their shame because they're living with the wounds and the sin in their soul and they live in fear of being found out. Wealthy, living rich begins when we take off the costume. I've learned this. It's been the hardest thing for me. It happens when we open our hearts, when we expose the wounds and the sin for what they are, and when God pours healing and wholeness and hope into our hearts. And it's at that point that you are free, and it's at that point that you become rich. It's at that point that God can finally pour into your life all that He intended for you to be from the very beginning. So where are you at? And that's a good question. And it's one that you need to be honest about. Because right now, God has given you that opportunity. But He doesn't promise that He'll continue to give you that opportunity. Right now, God is speaking into many of your hearts right now, and He's asking you, where are you at right now? Are you living as a king, or are you living as a pauper? Are you living with all the junk and the stuff inside you, and you're just wrapping it tighter and tighter and putting more and more costume over the shame, trying to keep everybody from seeing in? Or have you really dealt with the sin and the wounding that is going on inside of you? And I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't matter what it is. You're not the only one living in that. And God wants to heal that, and He wants to take care of that. Are you still trying to fake it and still trying to make it? Are you still living in the poverty mentality or are you rich, living out the blessing of God? And it all begins by acknowledging who you are, getting real, getting real, admitting that you have wounds and sins. First to yourself. You know, a lot of us are walking around saying, oh, I don't have any problems, nothing wrong with me. You know, it's not true. Get in front of a mirror and look and see. Pull it open and look. It's still in there. It didn't go away just because you hid it. Don't lie to yourself. You cannot fix what you will not admit. 
The, the number one thing that Saul needed to do, the number one thing I need to do, that you need to do, is I've got to get in front of a mirror and say, I have a big old mess inside of here. That's the only way it works. And then to someone else, you've got to have someone else. The Bible says confess our sins one to another. It doesn't say to confess that in church. I don't want you coming up here right now and start confessing all your sins. That would be weird. But you need to find people in your life, people that you trust, people that know Jesus, people that can help you so that you can deal with that and find you someone if it's deeper than that, if the wounds are so deep that you can't deal with them, so that you can get well, so that you can get past that, so that the sin can be forgiven, so that you can get rid of the shame. And then it may be a testimony up here where you say, I did this and I had this going on, but God has re he's removed it all and the shame is gone. And you can testify to the removal of the shame in the costume. But you have to take off the costume and tell the truth so the shame will go away. If you're having trouble with this, see me. I would love to help you. I'm so tired of watching people live their lives with the costume on, acting like everything is okay when it's not. And if I can't help you, which there's a good chance I won't be able to, we can find people who can. Here's the good news. I want you to hear me right now. Every one of you sitting here today, because a lot of you don't believe this. You are a man, you are a woman like no other. God says so. You are a man, you are a woman like no other. There's not very many of you in the world. In fact, there's only one, you. And you are important to God. And he has some big plans for you. But you've got to let him have you. That's how God sees you. That's what he believes about you. And if you're going to be rich, you have to know this yourself. And you've got to own it. You've got to own it. Father, right now, I don't know why you laid this so heavy on me this week, and I have fought with this. This has been a wrestling match because I have stood in the place of Saul where I said it's not my fault so many times, where the shame was so big that I didn't want any more shame. And I'm so thankful that you have spoken into my heart and that I've been able to tell the truth, confess a lot of things, and in the process, Lord, remove that costume. The shame is gone. The sin is gone. There's freedom. There's hope. I stand here as one who admits freely that I mess up from time to time, but Jesus, you're more than enough. You forgive sin. You make right. I don't need to feel shame and beat up. I'm a, your child. I am one who is like no other. Even if they don't understand that, Lord, you do. And that's awesome. Thank you. And today, Lord, as I stand here, I just stand before your people. And my heart hurts for them. It hurts for the ones who are walking around with their costume tied up tight. It hurts for the ones who are walking around and still have the sin and the wounds. And they're still inside there all festering. And they're still walking around in shame, afraid that no one else has ever been like this before. And what would people think? Lord, I just hurt for them. And I pray, God, that you will set us free. Because, Lord, like we sang earlier, the one who the sun sets free is free indeed. And I want to see people free indeed so they can be rich, so we can live like kings. Because, Lord, you've made us to be your children. You've made us sons and daughters of the King of Kings. So, Lord, right now, my prayers for people here, that this week they'll get in front of a mirror. They'll find a place to admit that they need it. They'll find those who can help them, and they'll get this dealt with, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
this is the first uh, Sunday of this church year. And so I want to ask, if you are a board member, newly elected, if you're the, one of the ex-officio members of the board, if you're leading like ladies, women's ministries, men's ministries, if your name is in that book as a Sunday school, SDMI committee, whatever, a board, lead, uh, board person, uh, if you're in there, would you come up? I want you to come and kneel at the altar today. We're going to pray over you and pray that God will just be there for each one of you. So would you come on up right now, all of you, and I want you to see each person. Amen. Now, these are your leaders. They are elected, duly elected by uh, the board or by the church and appointed by the pastoral team to lead this church forward. Uh, yeah, uh, Daryl, you need to be up here. You're leading the pack churches. You need to get up here. You need to be up here. I have to help them. They don't know their leaders yet. We're, we're working on that. <laughs> I forgot staff. They should know. I'm sorry. My fault. All righty. Those of you who'd like to, I'd invite you to come up around and just kneel, uh, just stand around behind them, and we're going to pray for them right now. Just put your hands on them and, and uh, just love on them and let them know that you're there for them right now. Even if you're not part of our church and you want to pray for us, you're welcome to come up here and stand with them too. We'd love to have you. Oh, Jesus, right now. Lord, we just, uh, we just stop for a moment and think about the year ahead. Lord, it's, there's much going on in our church. There's much going on in our community. These are people, Lord, that you have called and appointed. You've set them aside. You've put your hand upon them, just like you did Saul and David. And Lord, it would be easy for them right now to, to run and hide in the baggage. Because, Lord, the responsibility for this is great. Lord, I have been overwhelmed by it this week. I have just sat there, and many times this week, I have said in my heart, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't feel adequate. But God, we know that you are adequate, that you're more than enough. And so, Lord, I commit to you this year. And I invite your presence, Lord, to be with us. Lord, I ask that you would be with each person who you have called, that you will fill them. Lord, that if there's anything, first of all, inside of their soul that needs to be dealt with, they'll deal with it. That they'll get rid of the shame. That they'll get rid of the baggage. That we can lead as kings, as children of the King of Kings. Lord, that we'll make a difference in this city. That people will be saved. That lives will be changed. That hearts will be made brand new. That it won't be the same this time next year. That we'll be in a different place, that God, you'll be moving us forward and we'll be saying yes to you in whatever you want to do. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for strength. I pray that you will bless. I pray that you will pour out. I pray that people will come uh, to know you and that this will just be the greatest year that Muncie First Church has ever experienced. And Lord, I pray that we will be able to make a difference in our community. Lord, we have started to reach out. Uh, we have begun to, to reach out to different ones, but Lord, that's not enough. You have so much more planned. And Lord, we accept whatever it is that you want to do, and we invite you, Lord. We invite you to lead. It's not the pastors and the 
staff who lead this church. It's you, Lord. And we stand here before you right now and submit our will to yours and say, Lord Jesus, come. Do in us, with us, through us, whatever you choose. Bless each person who will be on boards. Bless those who are staff. Bless those who have any place at all. Bless those who clean. Lord, bless those who who cook. Lord, all of us, Lord, as we move forward, that the kingdom of God would flourish here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Thank you guys. And I am looking forward to a great year ahead. We handed out a booklet. There should be a lot of information in there that that Pastor Ian put together. And I hope you'll get those and read through that. There's a lot of good, good information. Okay, now, I'm going to dedicate the windows now. And uh, it's not that this is least important. It's just I wanted everybody to be real aware of what we were doing. So if you want to stand up and turn around, because they're in the back. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being, made, who are being saved, it is the power of God. As you all know, Al Holdren produced and entitled these windows, A Mess of Crosses. I love that name, A Mess of Crosses. While oftentimes we look at our lives and it's a mess that we've made, Al and all of us have found that it is at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus paid the price for our sins, that he makes sense out of and straightens up the messes that we've made. Many of these crosses don't line up. Just as many of our lives fall short, but the blood of Jesus covers our sin and makes us righteous in God's eyes. Some cool facts about these windows. Al spent approximately 600 hours and 18 months designing and building these windows. They're an act of love for the church and as unto God. There are 40 to 50 different colors and textures of glass in the windows. There are 60 to 70 different sized and shaped crosses in the windows. 50% of the glass was produced right here in Indiana, in Kokomo. The small black cross is where Al signed the windows. And the same cross has all the names of the families of our church engraved in the silver channel around it. And it is really a prayer for all of us that God will use the cross to change our lives. Today we're here to dedicate these beautiful windows to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as we dedicate these windows, we as a congregation renew our pledge, and do this in your heart with me, that this building, that this place will be a place of worship, a place of prayer, and a place where messed up, lost people can come to the cross, and the blood of Jesus Christ can help us find hope. We the people, the families of Muncie First Church, affirm and commit our lives to the task of reaching the lost of Muncie in the days ahead. Thank you, Al and Chris, for this beautiful and incredibly generous gift of love. We receive it, and we thank you, and we honor you for it. It is my prayer in the days ahead that God will bless and keep you, and that He may prosper you, And give you joy over and over again as you labor and serve with us in the church. Father, again, we thank you and we praise you. And we dedicate these windows 
We dedicate this sanctuary, this auditorium. We dedicate this church again, Lord, to the one purpose of reaching people so that they can know the good news that Jesus Christ has come and forgiven their sin. And as we enter into the Lent season in the days ahead, and as we sing about the cross, and as we look at the cross, and as we think about all that you've done, may the mess of crosses that this windows represent remind us that each one of us had a cross that we were supposed to go to. But Jesus Christ took our place on his cross and we are free and we are free indeed because the one whom the Son sets free is free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.